Plato's longest dialogue is titled The Laws. And I like to joke with people and say that if size really does matter, then people would be spending much more time reading Plato's Laws. And it really is quite an amazing dialogue. In fact, so much so that I'm going to do an entire series on it, much like the entire series that I'm doing on Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And while I was preparing my notes to start making recordings on that series, it occurred to me to do maybe this small recording right here on a very brief passage in Aristotle's Politics as a way of introducing and advertising the series that I'm going to be doing on Plato's Laws. And all of these things are on my website, AthensCorner.com. So if you find yourself interested in these, I really encourage you to go there and take a look. And so with that being said, let me just jump into this fascinating topic right here so that you all can see just how much comes tumbling out and flooding out, really, of discussions about politics and law in general that many people might think are otherwise boring or even worse, that they just don't have the kind of depth that more traditional presentations of philosophical thought contain. And so, for example, when people use fancy words like metaphysics, epistemology, ontology, these kinds of things. And so what I'm suggesting is that from this topic, namely slavery in Aristotle's politics, the entirety of all of those other things that go by those fancy names comes tumbling out. And another way to phrase this is to say that the relationship between political philosophy and philosophy is absolutely not one of part and whole. It's simply not the case that political philosophy is a subdivision or a smaller part or can even in any way be thoroughly divided from all of those traditional concepts that we associate with philosophy. In other words, any serious discussion of political philosophy absolutely involves the entirety of all of those other fancy words, namely metaphysics or ontology, epistemology, ethics, aesthetics, etc., etc. And it's precisely because of all of those other things being contained within political philosophy already that Plato's dialogues simply do not separate into these traditional categories that we associate with various subfields of philosophy. Now, the reason for this, of course, is because Aristotle seemingly does that with his texts. You have, for instance, the physics, the metaphysics, the politics, the poetics, the rhetoric, and all the logical works and the biological works. But what I'm suggesting and what I'm going to demonstrate here is that that separation is not nearly as clear as people seem to want to believe it is. Because we're going to see in this passage of Aristotle's politics that the entirety of all philosophy comes tumbling out. And in fact, he wants the entirety of philosophy to come tumbling out from some brief comments that he makes while discussing slavery. Now, before I jump into it, I just want to point out that I'm going to be reading from the Joe Sachs translation of Aristotle's Politics. And this is important because most people are probably more familiar with the second edition of the Carnes Lord translation of Aristotle's Politics. But don't worry, because I'm going to read from that one as well, because I really want you to be able to see the subtle difference and how much hinges on those subtle differences. Now, the passage that I'm going to emphasize here comes from chapter 5 of book 1 in Aristotle's Politics. So we're still at the very beginning of the text, and Aristotle has gone through the various kinds of rule that are required in the life of man. And in particular, he's just discussed what happens in the household, and he's broached the question of what constitutes the proper rule of slaves. And while that itself is a fascinating topic and extremely rich as Aristotle presents it, 
I'm simply going to begin at the very end of chapter 4, where Aristotle gives a kind of brief summary of what his inquiry into this topic seems to suggest. He says the following, A possession is meant in the same sense as a part, for a part is not only part of something else, but also belongs wholly to something else, and similarly too with a possession. Therefore, while the master is only a master of the slave and does not belong to him, the slave is not only a slave of the master, but does wholly belong to him. And so what the nature and capacity of the slave are, then, is clear from these things. For one who, though a human being, belongs by nature not to himself, but to someone else, is by nature a slave. And a human being belongs to someone else, who, though a human being, is a possession, and a possession is a separate instrument for action. All right, that requires some explanation. What Aristotle is doing here is he's using a kind of methodological approach of analogous thinking in order to understand what a slave is. And the analogy that he uses is the relationship of part to whole. And what's characteristic of a part is in fact that it belongs to a larger whole. And the whole itself in no way belongs to the part because the very being of the part is defined by its relationship to the whole, not the other way around. And so if it is the case that this way of thinking analogically applies to a master and a slave, then it would necessarily follow that the slave belongs to the master in the same way that a part belongs to its whole. And what Aristotle says there is what characterizes a slave is that he is by nature incapable of possession of himself. In other words, there's something fundamentally limiting of the slave that simply seems to make it impossible for him to possess himself. And the analogy there being in the same way that a part by nature simply cannot be understood without reference to the whole of which it is a part. A slave by nature simply cannot be understood except in relationship to the master for whom he serves. And it's only insofar as those analogies hold that Aristotle can dare say what the nature and capacity of the slave are, then, is clear from these things. However, and this is what's so characteristic of Aristotle's particular manner of writing, if we were simply done with the subject and it's clear, then why continue the discussion on that subject and that's precisely what Aristotle does in chapter 5. And this is what he says. Whether there is anyone of that sort by nature or not, and whether it is a better thing and a just thing for anyone to be a slave or not, but all slavery is contrary to nature, needs to be examined next. And so there you have it. If it's the case that this analogy of part to whole relates to slave and master, then the immediate question then becomes whether or not such human beings do in fact exist. And if they do, is this particular kind of rule that's called slavery natural or in fact contrary to nature, which is to say natural to the human being or contrary to the nature of the human being? And so continuing, Aristotle says, and it's not difficult either to have insight into this through reason or to observe it from what happens. For ruling and being ruled are not only among the necessities, 
but also among the things that are advantageous. And some things diverge right from the moment of birth, either towards being ruled or towards ruling. And there are many forms of ruling and being ruled. The kind of rule is always better when those ruled are better, as when the one ruled is a human being rather than a beast, since the work is better that is carried out by those who are better. And wherever one rules and another is ruled, there is something that is their work. For in cases in which anything is organized out of a number of things, whether continuous or separate, and becomes some one thing in common, something that rules and something that is ruled becomes apparent in them all. And this carries over from nature as a whole into beings with souls. And here's where Aristotle is going to broach some all-important claims. He says, for there is a kind of ruling even in things that do not share in life, as in harmony. But these things probably belong to a more popular sort of inquiry. And an animal is the first thing organized out of a soul and a body, of which the one is by nature the ruling part and the other the ruled. And it is preferably in things having their natural condition that one ought to examine things that are by nature and not in defective ones. So the appropriate sort of human being to study is one who is best disposed in both body and soul, in whom this is evident. Okay, and so that's where we can stop in this reading because the all-important claims have just been made. So let me clarify what has been said, because if you were simply reading this casually and not paying attention to the great subtleties of what's being said, you might just skip right over it and not realize the enormity of what has just been said. The question with which Aristotle has begun this chapter is whether or not there are even human beings that do exist with the natures of slaves. Now that in itself is rather revolutionary because Aristotle is living in a time when in fact people, and possibly even Aristotle himself, do have slaves. And further, consequent upon that question, is whether or not this form of rule that's called slavery is itself just according to human nature or whether it is in fact unjust precisely because it is contrary to human nature. Again, these are revolutionary questions precisely because Aristotle is living in a time when so many people have slaves. He himself might even have slaves. I mean, you can almost imagine him sitting at his desk writing this, and he's looking across the room at one of his own slaves and probably thinking to himself, hmm, I wonder if people like him really do exist by nature. And if they do, I wonder if it's even just that I myself am participating in this, or in fact, if I'm acting contrary to human nature itself. But Aristotle says it's not difficult to figure these things out according to reason, or, as he says, simply looking at the world around him and what happens. And that's extremely important, because what Aristotle is showing us is that in doing philosophy, and in particular, philosophy that involves itself with the kinds of rule that exist in man's life, you have to be able to also look around you and look at the phenomena of the world around you and simply inquire into it with reason. And let's make sure that we understand how absolutely important that is in itself. Because what Aristotle is saying is that experience is to work hand in hand with reason. In other words, abstract ideals are not to lead the inquiry here. Rather, 
experience of the world around us is to work in very close conjunction and perhaps often even outright leading reason itself to keep it from flying away into the abstract ideals that men so often long for in the political world in which they live. And notice how this is just another way of saying what I did at the very beginning. Political philosophy is not a subdivision of philosophy, wherein philosophers would love to place metaphysics higher than everything else. That is absolutely not what Aristotle is doing here. In fact, what he's doing is showing us how it is that the life of man is the entryway into the life of the mind, not the inverse. Aristotle is not showing us that we begin with the life of the mind and then force the life of man to fit into whatever the life of the mind comes up with that isn't also extremely attentive to the life of man, which is simply to say the way in which men live. Metaphysics is not prior to political philosophy, and it's absolutely insane to think that it should be or that it even ever could be. Aristotle's prudent approach to the inquiry itself is absolutely showing us that for us to expect too much of reason in politics, which is to say the life of man, or even more of reason than our experience shows us when we simply look at the world around us, which is to say even the present way that men are living, is itself unreasonable. And as Aristotle looks at the world around him, what he immediately says is that ruling and being ruled are simply necessary. In other words, it is of the nature of man himself that rule and being ruled are always and everywhere part of his life. And moreover, in addition to this, ruling and being ruled, which is a necessary part of man's life as such, has the characteristic of being advantageous or disadvantageous for man's life. And what Aristotle says is that it simply is advantageous to man's life. And just as a sidebar here, but probably the most important sidebar ever, in chapter 2 of book 1, Aristotle told us what the life according to Logos is. And honestly, just hearing that should blow you away. Because Logos is so unique in distinguishing man from all other animals, that Aristotle telling us what the life according to Logos is, is itself equivalent to Aristotle telling us what man is. In other words, this is a moment of Oedipus proportions. But in chapter 2 of book 1, Aristotle explicitly tells us, Logos is for disclosing what is advantageous and what is harmful, and so too what is just and what is unjust. And so this concept of the advantageous constitutes one of only three concepts in total that define the life according to Logos. And the life according to Logos is that which especially marks out the human being and makes him unique from all other animals. So, what we have is that ruling and being ruled is a necessity of human life and it is advantageous to human life. And then, returning again to the phenomena of the world around him, he says it's perfectly clear that from the moment of birth, some things simply manifest the characteristic of ruling whereas other things simply manifest the characteristic of needing to be ruled. And he says that there are many examples of this. And then he uses that concept of advantageous to understand these various kinds of rule. Namely, when better things are produced from being ruled, 
that kind of rule is itself better. And he uses the examples of human beings versus beasts. And he says that rule over human beings, when it produces better human beings, is itself a better kind of rule than the kind of rule over beasts that would produce better beasts. And so what's happening right before our eyes is we are seeing that there is a natural hierarchy in this thing that we call rule. And that hierarchy is absolutely determined by this concept of advantageous. Whatever is more advantageous of necessity is higher in the hierarchy or the ordering of the various kinds of rule. And he points to the work that results from the rule. In other words, the telos or the purpose of the rule itself shows the advantage or the good of the rule. And continuing in rapid succession, he says, look at any kind of organization of various things, whether those things are themselves continuous with each other or are discrete individual things. And then simply consider the unity or the whole that they constitute as a unity, as a whole. And he says that that unity or that whole that is constituted by these various things always exhibits some kind of principle of organization. In other words, it always exhibits some kind of rule to the ordering that is the whole. And he says that's where you see it. That's where you see something that is ruled and something that rules. He says it's manifest. It's obvious. And then there's the amazing claim. He says that that structure, in other words, the principle of rule within any organization of various things, carries over from nature as a whole, in other words, from the entirety of the phenomenal world around us, even in things that do not share of life. And he holds up harmony as the example. In other words, Aristotle pulls music into this very deeply philosophical discussion of not simply the natures of everything in the phenomenal world around us, but even in those things that don't even have life, and so they don't even have natures. And so, for example, a flute or a lyre, these things do not have natures, and they're certainly not alive. And yet, from them, one can produce harmony. And Aristotle's amazing claim is that that harmony is exemplary of the principle of rule that you can find in everything. In other words, the cosmos itself. And just think about that word cosmos. It literally means an order. And then Aristotle is quick to say that this kind of discussion probably belongs to a more popular sort of inquiry. Now let's think about that for a minute. Aristotle is the one who writes entire texts on logic. He writes entire texts on metaphysics. So what's going on with that word probably there? Does the discussion belong here in a discussion about politics, or does it belong somewhere else? Because Aristotle is absolutely qualified to tell us where it belongs. I would submit for your consideration that Aristotle is using a kind of deadpan comedy right here, especially because he continues the discussion. He immediately says, an animal is the first thing organized out of a soul and a body. Okay, so we have two things. And whether they are discrete or continuous, it doesn't matter. Because Aristotle's claim is that the organization of both of them together will exhibit a principle of order, which is to say a principle of rule. And he flatly asserts, the one is by nature the ruling part and the other the ruled. In other words, soul is to rule the body. But that's not the most important thing that's been said there. Because the most important thing that was said there 
is that the first thing that's organized out of a body and soul is an animal. And we already know that between the various animals of human being versus beasts, human beings are better because of the works that they can produce. And so what Aristotle has just told us is that the first, in other words, the most important of all possible organizations of things, whether discrete or continuous, is the human being. And of human beings, and all things really, he says it's most important to examine those that are not defective. And then with that claim, he's able to make the astonishing conclusion that is the very purpose of this discussion for us right now. Namely, if you want to see, or better, if you want to know the universal principle of organization, in other words, the rule that runs throughout the entirety of the cosmos itself, then you simply need to look or study. The word Aristotle uses there is theoria, which means study, or even better, contemplate the human being, the man, who is best disposed in both body and soul. And in continuing the radicality of the claim, he says in an almost offhanded way, in whom this is evident. So let's assess what's been said. The claim is that there is a universal principle of rule somehow at work in the entirety of the cosmos itself, which absolutely includes man. And if you want to see it or to know it, then simply contemplate the man in whom the excellence of both body and soul is obvious. And so from the question of this chapter at the beginning, which is to say whether or not there are slaves that do exist by nature, and whether or not it's just to exercise the rule of slavery over them, what has unfolded from this and just come tumbling out is everything, and especially the most important thing, of all philosophy. And that is the indication of a universal ruling principle that organizes the entire cosmos. And it's to be found, and apparently only to be found, in contemplating the man or the human being who exhibits, and who obviously exhibits, the greatest excellence of both body and soul. Now the way that Sachs translates it there is one who is best disposed in both body and soul. And when you turn to the second edition of the Karn's Lord translation, the way that he translates it is as follows. The human being to be studied is one whose state is best both in body and soul. In him, this is clear. And so the all-important word there for Sachs is best disposed, and for Karn's Lord, it's whose state is best. I really don't like that word state at all. It reminds me of language from contemporary physics. The Greek that Aristotle uses there is the word diakimenon. And when that word is used in reference to things, exactly as it's being used here, the things being body and soul, what it means is simply to be settled, fixed, or ordered. And so while Sachs's use of the word disposed is far better than Lord's use of the word state, we can really bring out what's being said if we just simply use the word ordered. And that gives us the following variation of that all-important conclusion, namely, the appropriate sort of human being to study or to contemplate is one who is best ordered in both body and soul and in whom it is evident. And let's not forget, the example that Aristotle himself just used is harmony. And so we can be extremely provocative and say that the claim being made here 
by Aristotle is that if you want to know the harmony of the cosmos itself, including man, then look no further and contemplate no further than the best exemplars of man in whom body and soul are manifestly in their best harmony. Again, that is an extremely provocative claim, precisely because it's an extremely enormous claim. And so going back to my purpose for this brief discussion here, what I'm suggesting about thoroughly examining and studying Plato's longest dialogue about law, absolutely nothing less is on the table than the very question of the harmony of the cosmos itself. Now, in full recognition of how brazen and bold that claim is, I'm just going to simply invite you to join me in that journey that I'm doing into the entirety of Plato's laws that I'll be going through very slowly and in exactly the same way that I'm going very slowly through Nietzsche's Thus Spoke Zarathustra on my website, AthensCorner.com. I think you're really going to enjoy it because everything that comes tumbling out of all of these discussions is absolutely relatable to whatever it is your own field of study is. And I mean that in the absolute literal sense, because it doesn't matter if your field of study pertains to any of the sciences or any of the humanities, they all get covered and covered in enormous richness and detail in the enormously complex logos that constitutes and simply is this thing we call the dialogue, Plato's Laws. And so I really hope you join me because it's going to be a lot of fun.